This month, to celebrate AAPI heritage, we wanted to feature an episode from Modern Minorities, one of our sister podcasts from Potluck. Featuring minority voices for all of our majority ears, Modern Minorities is trying to solve racism, one conversation at a time. Their co-hosts Sharon and Ramon might be Asian American pals, but their guests go much wider to the entire American experience. You can learn more at modmypod.com and subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Because remember, we're all modern minorities. On the episode, we're featuring a conversation Modern Minorities held with documentary audio and film producer Gabrielle Burby, who discusses her journalism as well as the most heavenly of lunch meats, spam. You can learn more about Modern Minorities and our other Potluck podcasts by going to podcastpotluck.com. Enjoy! You're listening to... Whoa! Potluck! Filipinos love spam. My grandfather would tell the story of how spam got to our family through being a young boy during World War II. I became privy to all of the other Asian cultures that feel a similar ownership. But then I came across the history about spam in the United States. So then that just sent me down this entire rabbit hole. Like wherever you look in the big trends of American history and meatpacking and labor and immigration, I found how little I knew about who was doing these jobs before and why they were no longer doing them. My name is Gabrielle Burbet, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Gabrielle Burbet, a documentary audio producer and filmmaker who's done work with The Atlantic and WNYC. She's actually one of the hosts of the critically acclaimed podcast, The Experiment by The Atlantic. And she actually released a three-part miniseries talking about her Filipino family's history with spam. And so while that show, which we'll put links to in the show notes, does talk about spam's longtime entanglement with Asian and Pacific Islander peoples, she actually starts to uncover how it actually informs not just the immigrant experience, but the labor experience, next generations of immigration, the middle class. And it was overall just a conversation about her experience and her curiosity as a journalist. I don't know, Sharon, what'd you think? I really liked getting to know her. When I had heard about her and uh, looked her up and learned about everything she was doing about spam, it brought back memories of my own relationship to spam, which sounds so funny. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, so when I was growing up, for example, my grandma would make spam with macaroni and like a chicken broth. So it was almost like a chicken soup with macaroni and spam in it, especially whenever I felt sick. So when I think about that canned meat, I think about feelings of comfort and definitely grandma. And, and I think that's what's so interesting about Gabby's series is that there's a lot, there's just so much there in terms of how, how spam has 
woven its way into immigrant culture. But do you have any experiences with spam, Roman? Because I feel like I don't. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I grew up eating Indian food, which is mostly vegetarian. So. Exactly. But what's more interesting is her miniseries, while it kind of centers on spam, only one of the three episodes talks about that kind of Filipino-Asian experience with it, because it's just so much a story of kind of the changing middle class of this country. But I think food or even products or brands, ugh, I cringe when I say that, they're really interesting through lines and touchstones to different elements. Like there's so many angles that you can look at one thing and you come in and kind of like with the show, you come in like with her podcast, us with the show, you come in thinking you're going to talk about one thing. And as you start to kind of like peel back the onion, you start to discover there's a lot more interesting questions that don't quite fit your angle. We've, we've seen that with so many guests. We think we're going to talk about a guy's Arab experience growing up in Cleveland, but we wind up talking about music the whole time. Right. And that's kind of the right. beauty of the show. Yeah. And we definitely went there with Gabby today of just really learning about just so much about her own story and how she approaches telling other people's stories and uncovering different truths within journalism. So I think you're really going to love our chat with Gabrielle Burbet. Gabrielle, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So folks have heard your voice. They've probably seen some of your work. But I guess what folks might not know, Gabrielle, is uh, where are you from? I am from the San Francisco Bay Area, from San Rafael <laughs> in California. Gabrielle, where are you really from? <laughs> Does anyone ever ask you that? <laughs> Never. <laughs> where Where am I really from? Um, well, my... Mom is from the Philippines, from Manila, and my dad is from uh, Panama City in Panama. Rad. I, I have to ask, what was that like growing up? <laughs> so Filipino and Latino culture is actually really, there, there are a lot of similarities. There's this book, actually, forgot the author's name, but it's this book about how Filipinos are like the Latinos of Asia, and it's about how Filipinos and Latinos have a lot of like cultural um, similarities just because of Spanish colonialism. So it's actually not as like totally disparate as it sounds, even though Panama and the Philippines are two totally different parts of the world. But uh, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. I, I mean, I grew up with like a lot of family everywhere, um, all over California, just, you know, a lot of my mom's family and dad's family is here now. So mm -hmm. it was really fun. It's funny because my daughter, who's much younger, right? But she's <laughs> half Chinese and she's half Indian. And I wonder about that. Like her identity is just, I'm this kid and, you know, I'm American and mom has these tastes and dad has these tastes. But I've always wondered like how she's growing up, how she kind of threads the needle in that kind of biracial identity. Did The answer is probably the same. Did you feel more of one? Did you feel the pull to either? Or it was just all kind of the same and mom and dad are weird? <laughs> um, I mean, they are weird, but separate from that. Um, <laughs> it's a compliment, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, it's hard because like, I think I look more, like just when you look at me, I think people initially think that I'm Latina. Mm -hmm. So that is usually the first kind of assumption. But I actually feel more Filipina because I grew up kind of like raised by my Lola, which is grandma yeah. in Tagalog on my mom's side, and she's Filipino. She's from the Philippines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I grew up more surrounded by my Filipino relatives and my, all of my mom's siblings. And then so just kind of like 
by proxy to that, I feel more Filipina. But mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. funny because in terms of just where I actually feel more accepted or more read as something that other than just Gabby and Red is like, okay, what are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It mm-hmm. usually defaults to, are you Latina? So I think I feel more Filipina, but I actually realize that in terms of just spaces where I like blend in, it's more Latina. That's so interesting. That yeah. is really interesting. How do you differentiate that? Like, is it a, how do you relate to each of those pieces of yourself? You know, I, do you guys listen to Code Switch? Yep. Okay, so you know how Shireen is always like, I feel super Puerto Rican and very like kind of alien from my Iranian side. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I feel very similarly about my Latina side and that my, um, you know, I don't speak either actually, which is so embarrassing. Um, But but I feel more, I definitely just feel more Filipino just by growing up around all of my relatives and in, sure. in the Bay Area, you know, and like right, right. a lot of my relatives have lived in Daly City and just going to Filipino restaurants, like culturally. Mm-hmm. So it's the surrounding experiences when you were a kid. That yeah, kind of yeah. But then, you know, always kind of being like, oh, but I don't actually look like everybody else. Everybody else. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and in more, in like, interestingly, when I go into a space where there are more, Latinas I, or Latinos, I feel culturally like, oh, okay, you know, I don't quite relate, but in terms of just acceptance, it actually feels more open. Well, there is that surface level blending. Like you walk yeah. into a room and people, I mean, it's not just the look of your skin. Like I noticed in India, I might look Indian, but the way I walk, talk, and dress, they're like, this guy is not from here, right? Yeah. But it's that, it's not even quite judgment. It's kind of the spectrum of acceptance when you're in the room. Yeah, just like a more like settled, you know, yeah. just no one yeah. is like, oh, so who is not Filipino in your family? Like, yeah. was it your mom? Or, is it your mom or your dad? Like, you know, that is never asked if I'm in a space that is predominantly Latino versus Filipino. And that is because obviously in when we're saying Latino, that covers all different kinds of races. <laughs> right. So like that yeah, is yeah, yeah. why. And yeah. I will say also that in the Bay Area, there's not as big of a Panamanian community as there is, mm-hmm. you know, communities for other Central American countries. So yeah. I think also just not growing up around a lot of Panamanians, which interestingly, when I went, when I moved to New York, there is a huge Panamanian community in New York and kind of coming into that and moving there as an adult and being like, oh, this is this is Panama. Mm. I will say also my dad left Panama when he was 12 and he moved with his family when, when they moved to San Francisco. So, you know, I think he he just feels more connected to the Bay Area than he does mm-hmm. to Panama, right. just spending like his formative years here. More of his time there. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think about that a lot with my dad because, you know, my dad left India in his young 20s. He's been here longer, right? He has a greater identification with his life here mm-hmm. than his life there. And I, I so much of this is like this kind of like mixed feet and kind of two waters, two cultures thing is it's always been here in this country, right? And yeah. it, it's just becoming increasingly common. I mean, Sharon and my kids, you, a lot more kids popping yeah. up in this world. Right? Yeah. Um, it's the nature of our melting pot. I mean, how do you try and toe that line with your daughter? Like, is there something where you're like, we want her to be, to feel that, like, we want oh, her man. to feel this, or we want her to feel connected to this, but. It's, it's tricky, right? And Sharon, you and I have talked about this, like, when we were growing up, right? Like, 
Sharon had a lot of Chinese cultural experiences around her. I had a ton of Indian cultural experiences with just a handful of families in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And so I could fall back on that, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Right. And now that my wife and I are adults, and we don't necessarily hang out with, we don't feel the need to hang out with an Indian community or a Chinese community, right? Because we're Americans. We were raised here. Yeah. And so my daughter doesn't have that to fall back on, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I talk about that a lot. Like, oh, so we actually should make a concerted effort about Diwali, about Chinese New Year's, yeah. about these things. But it's hard. Yeah. And it's it's hard to find that balance. Like, so I'm, my kids are also mixed race. I'm, I'm Chinese and my husband is Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So they're half black, half Asian. And it actually doesn't even come into my consciousness really until we have to make a decision about one or the other. So in two days, my second grader has a multicultural event at school where everybody has to show up in their traditional costumes and uniforms, right? Hmm. And I'm like... Because foreign people, we wear costumes and uniforms. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Wait, what are like... And, <laughs> sorry, I have so many questions, but I will... <laughs> so, right. So first of all, like, what does that mean? But okay, fine. But secondly, like, what do we put him in? Like, do I put him in an, a traditional Chinese outfit? Do we find something from like Trinidad that like he would march into school with? Like, does he wear like the top? Spider-Man as, t-shirt. Right. Spider-Man or, t-shirt. or that's what we did. So my kids used to go to the UN school when we lived in New York. And because they're mixed race and they're mixed culture... They would be holding the American flag when when it was flag day. So you'd have kids from France holding the French flag. You know, you'd yeah. have kids from like Jamaica holding the, the 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 Jamaican flag. And my little half black, half Asian kids would walk in with the the American flag because I was like, I don't like. What yeah. do I do? Do I give them five flags? Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> how do we- yeah. And then people are like, but where are you really from? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting, but it is, it's also as a parent, like you asking Roman, like, how does he tell the line? Like, I personally, I'm always like, they should know a lot about Chinese culture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I mean, claiming I, that, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I feel the same way in that, like, I think it's also just generational as well that I grew up with huge Filipino family parties mm-hmm, right. as mm-hmm. this like centerpiece of my childhood where every, you know, m- many weekends we would just gather with like tons of family. It might, we have hundreds of family members. It's insane. And now my generation, which is like my mom's, you know, the kids of my mom's cousins right. and siblings, we're all like moving around the country. Like we don't follow family in the way that my mom's generation mm-hmm. yeah, did. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, totally. very likely like when and if I have children, I will, they will not have that experience that, mm-hmm shaped my, mm-hmm. you know, relationship to Filipino identity. And then how do I kind of manufacture that in its absence? I mean, I don't know, but I feel like a loss there almost already. <laughs> so, so this is a, a random story, but like, I, I get mixed feelings about representation in media. It is very important. We should have Miles Morales and Kamala Khan and, you know, a Black Panther, blah, 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 in pop culture, pop media, everything. And it's just as important for the people not of that background to see people of that background. But what I do notice with my daughter, so we got a free Discovery Plus account, which is like streaming, reality TV, cooking, and home shows, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a while, somehow my daughter got this weird obsession with Guy Fieri. And again, I'm trying not to judge her, but, you know. (laughs) Okay, I think I one time did as well. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Somehow I relate to that. 
a little bit. <laughs> like, I remember discovering the Food Channel and being like, huh, this guy just goes to diners and eats, like, fried food? She loved, I mean, especially in the pandemic, which the last few years, in her active memory, right, she hasn't gotten to go to restaurants. So she's like, Daddy, can we go to this place when everything opens back up? And I'm like, ah, okay, maybe. But and, and anyway, I digress. So I was like, okay, no more Guy Fieri. Let's find another show. And so we're, like, scrolling through the food shows because she wants to watch food shows. And the two shows she gravitates to are the ones with Asian hosts. Hmm. This really old show from the 90s called uh, East Meets West. And there's this other show. Oh, that's so cringe. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it is. But You're I like, want that guy. Oh, no. You're like, watch it, but with a critical eye. Right, she's exactly. Like, Six. <laughs> Absolutely. But that wasn't the sh- that actually wasn't the show that, co- I mean, and we watched a couple and she found it interesting. Um, and I totally want to get that host on our show, right? The guy was a trailblazer. But at the same time, there's another show. She is, I believe, half Chinese, half Jewish, and she lives on a farm in Nebraska. And she has like eight seasons of this show. And my daughter is obsessed with this woman. She wants to watch this woman's show all the time. And I think it's because, I hate to say it, it's like, oh, she looks like me and she's doing the thing that I like. And mm-hmm. she's, I think she's seeking that because we do have a couple of Chinese and Indian friends, but they're not super prevalent in our life, especially with the pandemic. So she does, she's not surrounded by the aunties and uncles that we were as kids. Yeah. So she's seeking them out in media, in books, and even in comics. The characters that she kind of relates the most to are the ones that look different, if that makes sense. It, yeah. It's very strange to watch. Yeah. I remember totally doing the same when I was a kid without even like realizing it. And even as someone that did grow up with Titas and Titos all over, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, just all the time, I totally relate to that. I really like the idea of just someone that looks like me doing what they like and not being something that is like expected of them. Like, mm-hmm. oh, here's like this host doing something that is expected of them for their race. Like, I don't know. I like that. Yeah. When you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh my God. I wanted to be, (laughs) uh, I was like really obsessed with vampires when I was really little. So I wanted to be a vampire. (laughs) I wanted my dad to paint my room black. And he was like, oh my God. Absolutely not. Yeah. I was like a demonic child or something. (laughs) Just because I know we're of different generations, I have to understand what was the vampire pop culture thing that pulled you in? I loved Dracula. No, I loved Dracula. I was a really dark kid. I don't know. Like I remember reading the Dracula, the book. There was like this kind of kids abridged version. And I just was like, I was hooked. And then I also had an uncle who was obsessed with vampires and he just kind of, I think it was, he was on that planted the seed. So I wanted to be a vampire for a really long time until I realized that I couldn't be a vampire. Because it is a profession. That, that is a profession. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's you get job. paid. It's a real job. <laughs> yeah. I just remember. Actually, hang on. It's more aristocracy though. So it actually isn't, you know? So anyway. <laughs> I just, I don't know. The, yeah. I remember just being obsessed with vampires and being like, that's what I want to be. And then realizing that I couldn't be that and then wanting to be um, a writer. <laughs> because the two things are so closely related. That was her. Ba- that was her backup. Yeah, I was like, well, I was so moved by this book. So if I can't be the thing in the oh, book, then I yes. might as well just like write the book, which That's I'm so not writing great. a book. <laughs> what did your parents want you to be? Did they want you to be a vampire also? Yeah, I mean, at that point, that because that feels harmless. They're like, right. well, no, you know what? They, I think they were. A little, my mom was a little bit like, does she need an exorcism? Um, we're very Catholic, like Filipino Catholics. <laughs> so she was just like, this seems like bad. <laughs> um, but actually, interestingly, my mom. So my parents have an Italian restaurant in San Francisco, which yeah, like, of course they do. Yeah. Of course they do. Yeah, this is not, so great. We're Gabby, not Italian. Yeah, but you have the best story ever. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we're not Italian. No. <laughs> this episode sponsored by the Brevet Italian restaurant your, in the Bay Area. Is your is your signature dish like Nono's pasta or something? Like just it's totally the Shapi- it's up. the Chapino. Do you know the Chapinos? <laughs> no. What so it's actually the Chapinos is this is this dish that is actually like native to San Francisco. When all of the Italian fishermen in like the early 1900s would, you know, be done with the catch for the day and they would put all of the leftover fish that they would catch and whatever, like crustaceans into a big pot of like tomato broth. This is the lore. I didn't, you know, like I have no idea where this actually right. came from, but they would yeah. call it a chipino. So it's this Italian dish that's only kind of like native to the bay. Um, so if you went to Italy, they'd be like, what is that? And that is the name of the restaurant. That's actually where they met, and now they now yes. they own it. Aww. Well, I I do think to be clear, uh, you might have just figured out what your next project is because you've got to dig into this lore. So if, mm-hmm. if we fast forward to today, Gabrielle, you yeah. like that segue? That was, uh, that was <laughs> yeah, really, a really good one. That was really slick. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. So you are in quote unquote radio and media, right? You work with the Atlantic and WNYC, and the show that you co-host is. The experiment, which has a lot of really interesting takes and stories. And I want to dig more into the experiment in a bit. But, you know, the reason we kind of connected was you did a three part miniseries on spam. <laughs> and, yes. you know, at, when that was pitched, it was like, yeah, okay, I know spam is in a lot of cultures, be it Guam, Hawaii, uh, the Philippines, it is a delicacy. And you think that's where the show is going to go. In fact, that was the question you thought you wanted to answer and you wanted to dig into. And I would imagine as a journalist, you started to open up a separate can of worms, no pun intended, right, on other stuff about it. And so I guess, first and foremost, can you explain why you had to talk about spam <laughs> from a from a heritage standpoint, but then also from an interest in, you know, questions you had to ask about it? Yes, I will say that um, I'm not the co-host of the show. I, I co-hosted okay. this. I was like, I co-hosted the series, but the host gotcha. is Julia of the whole like podcast is Julia Longoria. Okay. So the, the spam series came from, God, we, we, so we're a new show started last year and, you know, we were kind of start, starting up the show just like throwing noodles at the wall for at episodes for ideas. It's frantic. Um, it's, it's a frantic schedule for a weekly show. And, you know, a lot of times we're just trying to, there's sometimes we have to fill a hole and it's like, okay, just like mm-hmm. what's a really quick question that you have that maybe can be an episode because it gets at some like larger idea about American history and, you know, this larger kind of thesis question. And is that the premise of the show? Can you yeah, back up? What is the premise of the experiment then? So the premise of the experiment is individuals navigating kind of the largest ideals of our country. Mm. And whether that's like looking back into history or people navigating the messy terrain today, it's just kind of like telling the biggest stories or trying to get at the biggest questions of like who we are and why we are through the tiniest lens. And so the spam episode came out of a series that came out of my question of like, we had to do an episode and I was like, what's a question I've always had? Okay, I grew up eating spam. I grew up with spam as something that was totally ubiquitous in my diet growing up. And and Filipinos love Spam. So it's like beyond the Filipino flag or something, especially growing up in the <laughs> Bay Area. It was it's just like spam rice and eggs. It's like it's what you eat for breakfast on Sundays. And I remember learning at one point that it wasn't Filipino and like being very confused about it and Googling it and being like, oh, it has some like history in World War II. Like that's kind of cool. 
But then I was like, okay, maybe for an experiment episode, it can be like, how did spam become ubiquitous in uh, Filipino food culture? And what can that tell us about, you know, like American imperialism? And, you know, it'll be a short episode and kind of quirky episode about food and the history of food. So that was the kind of initial culinary question. But yes. And that's episode one. (laughs) And that's episode one. And it goes into like a very personal, and it it starts from a very personal place of like my grandfather, my Lolo, he was like a young boy during World War II, around 10. And he was in the Philippines and um, he was like hiding in the mountains in the provinces of the Philippines from from the Japanese army during World War II. And he would tell stories about how American troops when the Americans came in uh, 1945, I believe, they would kind of roll through the roads of the provinces and give cans of spam to the local Filipino population there. And it's because spam was this staple in the diets of American GIs. It was in their K rations. So my Lolo just like had this like incredible love for spam and he would tell the story of spam and how spam got to our family through the story about World War II. So I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, that kind of feels like there is this very personal individual story at the center of this bigger question. It's dark, but it's happy. And yeah. 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 That was um, the initial question. And in pursuing that question, I kind of became privy to all of the Pacific Island and just like other Asian cultures that feel a similar ownership over spam. So one of my my more delightful cul-de-sacs in my research was like coming across the spam poet from Guam who just like writes all of this poetry (laughs) about spam. Yeah. I also found an erotic novelist who like in her from Guam who in her erotic novels that didn't make the cut of the podcast. That did not. That did not. That was that was a sad thing to go. But in her erotic fiction would write about spam. So it's just like found you know, all of the ways in which spam has really taken... It's a cultural touchstone. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But then in the pursuit of this, like, history, I came across the history about spam in the United States and the history of spam specifically in Austin, Minnesota, where it's from. and Where Hormel is based. Where Hormel is based, and that's the parent company for spam. And that, like you said, like kind of opened up that... Yeah, because anytime I ask a simple question, it's like just never simple. You know, I was like, okay, clearly... I I remember calling the historical society there just being like asking for some archive material for spam, and they were like, well, are you going to talk about the strike? That happened here. And, and I was like, like, what? I was like, what? <laughs> like, what strike? And they're like, you can't talk about spam without talking about the strike. So then that just sent me down this entire rabbit hole into this whole, like, like spam is like this kaleidoscope and like this other part of spam that is so different from the part that I was researching initially. And now a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. What? We've made it, dude. I mean, I love all of our sponsors equally, but I love some more equally. (laughs) Yeah, Sharon. Not only is this sponsor a big deal, it's actually about a topic that you and I are both super, super passionate about, COVID prevention. Yeah, you're right, dude. We're more than two years in, and as a country, we're still dealing with COVID-19. This is something we can't help but keep in mind in our day-to-day lives at home and work especially for those of us with immunocompromised people in our lives, our kids, our parents, and even all of our friends' kids and parents. 
and we want to make sure all of you, our super smart, savvy, and good-looking listeners of this pod, are vaccinated and boosted. And that you're encouraging all of the folks in your lives to do so, too. This AAPI Heritage Month, we can honor our AANHPI heritage communities and families today by getting vaccinated for a safer tomorrow. Wait, Roman, I thought it was just AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander. What's the NH in AANHPI stand for? Uh, It's Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander. Oh, snap. We got to get some of them on this podcast. Hmm, I think we need to go on location to record a chat with some Native Hawaiian guests in their Native Hawaiian islands. I'll settle for any Pacific Islands. (laughs) True that. But wait, hang on. Uh, What are we talking about again? We're talking about making sure we're all vaccinated. (laughs) And boosted. And boosted. For serious. Look, vaccinations greatly reduce your chance of having COVID symptoms like fatigue, pain, and memory problems that last for months. You know, beyond getting sick, long COVID is one of the COVID symptoms that really concerns me. I can barely keep everything going as it is. COVID is serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we are both parents with young kids and aging parents, so COVID is no joke. So we all have to do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and the communities we work and live in. Protect your tomorrow with a vaccine today. The COVID-19 vaccine is safe, effective, and free. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find vaccines and boosters near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. And now back to our show. So the show is, you know, you come into it thinking, oh, there's going to be kind of this happy ethnic heritage, cultural touchstone story of spam. And to your point, it's that's only a third of the show. The other two episodes, I almost the second episode reminded me of season two of The Wire, because let's talk about the working class. (laughs) Like, let's talk about the people who made this. And it's a very important story to be told. And I didn't know where you were going with it until episode three. And again, all three episodes are absolutely worth listening to. But episode three, if I if I may spoil it, mm-hmm. there was a very big strike in the midst of the mid-1980s labor movement, specifically 1986. And, you know, things happen. Just kind of leave it out. Brothers not talking to brothers. Yeah. And a lot of people who, who striked, they left. And then you fast forward to the relative modern day. Well, the production still needs to happen. Yeah. Subcontractors come in. And again, these meat packers who made the spam were kind of classic, growing middle class of this country, well compensated, union labor, et cetera, et cetera. And then cost cutting and strikes, and those people are out of a job. And then who takes the the new lower paying jobs is the next wave of immigrants, Latino culture, right? And it's almost interesting you being the one to tell the story, not realizing a little bit of Latino heritage, but it's people yeah. coming from South and Central America to take these jobs that quote-unquote, American workers didn't want to take. Yes. And the through line, there's a bigger story there, and it's worth listening to. But the interrogation for me was this. I do think that's part of America. Mm -hmm. I think it is. We are a country of immigrants, and people come in to take the jobs the other people don't. I remember when really shitty immigration laws were passing in Alabama, and, you know, we were vilifying Latinos, uh, people picking the tomatoes, making them not feel safe. And guess what? For two whole seasons, we didn't have people to pick the tomatoes because I hate to say it, the quote unquote Americans didn't want to pick them. But it's this idea of mm-hmm. people need to come in. And again, we hope systemically we can have fair wages and fair working conditions and all of those things so they can establish a middle class life for themselves. And that was the most striking thing about 
there was no contention with the people and these new people taking the jobs, but it was really an examination of who are these new people taking the jobs and what do they want and what's happening to them for right or for wrong, right? I just, I just found that fascinating that that you, you pick this one thing spam and you follow it to, to like two to three different through lines of the American experience. Yeah. The majority one and the minority one. Yeah. I mean, it's fair. It's like, I think I, we like to say that it, spam kind of became like the forest gump of America of just like wherever mm. you look in kind of American history and like the big trends, American history and meatpacking and labor and mm-hmm. immigration, mm-hmm. like spam is there. So it really was particularly kind of looking at what spam can tell us about the history of the meatpacking industry and how um, we have gotten to the state of the meatpacking industry today, which is like predominantly immigrants, immigrant workers working low wages. You know, what what I found surprising about this for me was how little I knew about who was doing these jobs before and why they were no longer doing them, which is part of episode two and kind of goes back to all of the the big consolidation waves in the 80s under Reagan of the smaller meatpacking plants around mm-hmm, the country mm-hmm. and that you predominantly like middle-class white workers who, American white workers who had houses and boats and very comfortable- Two-week vacations in Hawaii. Exactly, right? yeah. Which is and awesome. That's the American dream. That is the American dream and very much like feeling they were living the American dream. And then as the meatpacking plants started consolidating, globalization, automation- you know, who was bearing the brunt of these changes, but they were the workers. And this strike that happened at the spam factory was like coming off of the heels of the big strikes that happened in the 80s. So like Mm -hmm. the air traffic controller strike where Mm -hmm. Reagan Mm -hmm. fired 11,000 air traffic controllers happened Mm -hmm. a few years before this strike. And this strike was seen as kind of like the last stand for workers at that time. It was like the last gasp of American labor is what (laughs) someone told us when we were, you know, in, in the interview. But I think for a lot of those people in the interview, the story stopped there when it came to like how they intersected with meatpacking. But then, you know, when we went to Austin, when the host Julie and I went to Austin, we were like, well, to interview people about episode two and kind of about this really contentious strike, looking around, we were like, this town is so... Latino. And well, actually now there's also a lot of, they took in a lot of Sudanese refugees that also work at the plant. And that's this whole other story about today too, but, um, and Hmong refugees as well. But that's episode four. That's episode four. Yeah. Yeah. But especially like the Latino community had such a strong presence in the town. And we were like, you know, we're talking to all of these older white workers that are talking about the strike that happened in the eighties, but being in the place. And this is, kind of a plug for like actually going and doing journalism in person mm-hmm. as expensive and difficult and mm-hmm, time consuming mm-hmm. as it may be is that you go to there and you're like, I don't think that's like the bigger question. The bigger mm-hmm. like question of peace isn't about the strike. It's actually like, how does the strike pave the way for the meatpacking industry as we know it today? I mean, you know, it's all for, just- for, for, for better or for worse. Cause that's what one of the guests in yeah. episode three talks about. He was like, it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, it was a bad thing, but if it didn't happen- me and my family and all of this community wouldn't exist here. Yeah. And that was also something we were really conscious of is not going into this, the th- episode three of telling the story about, you know, the predominantly Latino community that's in, that now works at the plant and not being like, and look at these poor, sad immigrants that now have to work there. First of all, that wouldn't have been accurate to 
what we saw, which was people were like, we're really grateful for this place in the way that kind of goes against, I think, how we think of meatpacking of like, it's just this terrible industry that is doing these right, terrible the things. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. And to even tell a story that was that binary just like wouldn't have been true to what people were telling us. Like the whole thing was complicated. People were grateful to be there. And it was also just the reality that they were getting paid way less than the workers that in the eighties inflation adjusted. in the eighties. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Inflation adjusted. And like, as you'll, you know, there's, there was a disease that was spreading through the planet episode three that came from sped up production lines that were, right. that the were, conditions are worse. Yeah. They're being paid less, but the opportunity, and it's, it's a tricky thing, right? Because it's, it plays into the bootstraps narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, these guys are willing to take the job, but kind of the systemic push it's not, ex- I want to be careful with my words. It's not necessarily exploitative, but it's taking advantage of. Yeah. yeah. I'm all about providing opportunity and reaching down to the next class of people coming into this country, be they from Sudan, from Syria, from Ghana, wherever, right? But at the same time, what are the systemic things that we need to put in place to make sure kind of these abuses aren't happening? And I, I think to get, get on my soapbox a little bit more, like the pandemic has exacerbated our examination of the people who are quote unquote essential workers, you know, yeah. we're happy for them. Yeah. We put up signs and we ring bells and all that shit, but like, okay, well, what about the systemic changes that we need to make the opportunity more fair for them? Yeah. And I think what is lost when you, you know, so, so I think what, what is lost or what I saw like kind of lost for me in talking to the people that work at the plant now, which again, like we talked to mainly workers from Mexico is that they don't know what was lost in the eighties. Like, mm. So you go yeah. in and you don't know, all you know, there was a strike and that's why there are all of these jobs. If you even do know that there's a strike. Well, because it's swept under the rug, right? Yeah. People don't, want to, talk People don't want to talk about it. So it's like, all you know is that there's this plant and they have opportunities and that I can move here and work at this job. And, but you don't know, you don't know what the workers were fighting for in the eighties that you don't have now, right. which, which allows right. like something like the strike to be swept under the rug because you don't have you don't even give the opportunity for the people that are working there now to understand like what was lost. Yeah. It's just this like opportunity. And it's also in some ways a double-edged sword, right? Because if, if you're coming into a country for the first time, you're looking for, you're looking for communities that are familiar to you. And so they're sort of creating these enclaves, these cultural enclaves, which is very attractive if you are new to an area. Cause it's, it's just like, as you talked about growing up, right? Just having like Tito's mm-hmm. and Tita's around you. It's that same dynamic. And mm-hmm. so it feels safe. And it's like, okay, well, maybe there is better opportunity in a different city, or maybe I could find a different kind of job, but my neighbors are here and my cousin is down the block. And it's very opportunistic, but not to benefit the next generation, the next wave yeah. of people coming here. Well, I, I think about that a lot. I mean, many immigrants will say, I don't want to even say most, is, you know, the sacrifices you make to leave where you're from, to take a harder job, et cetera, is for the next generation. And it is so their kids, I think, don't have to work at the meatpacking plant. So they can right. go to school. So they can be afforded other opportunities. So, it, But it is this like generational sacrifice that I think happens I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I think it's that first generation that comes over, no matter whether you're Polish or Irish or Russian or Chinese or Indian or Filipino or Ecuadorian, right? Like it's that first generation makes a lot of sacrifice for the rest of us to kind of be spoiled Americans who have podcasts, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that I also didn't make in the episode that is that, um, so first, I think the first wave was like 
again, mainly Mexican immigrants coming from specifically Oaxaca. And there was a lot of animosity between the strikers and the immigrants that were coming in. So these are white, predominantly white strikers from the 80s who have been in generations of of meat packers, coming from families with generations of meat packers that have been in Minnesota for generations. And there was animosity and um, especially at the beginning, like, like racism towards the people that were coming in to be in these, in these jobs. There was like blame placed on them of, you know, the fact that they're coming in and and taking these low wage positions and kind of enabling the company to continue to just pay workers less and, Mm -hmm. and speed up production lines, which is just like totally misdirected uh, blame. So one thing that I think you've, made clear to us is that you really love stories and, and telling stories like this. What what other types of things do you find yourself drawn to? Besides spam. <laughs> Besides spam. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the stories that I've done on the experiment, I think I'm drawn to stories where I don't know how to feel almost morally about kind of yeah. what the story in that I like when I don't when it when it feels messy and it feels like it's not so clear cut as to who's in the wrong and who's in the right. And I feel like I'm drawn towards stories where the people genuinely like are just trying to do their best. Yeah. And you know, there's conflict and it's not totally clear like this person is wrong and this person is right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you can like learn finding like patterns in in history if that makes sense like just who we are as people and and kind of like what what we fight for and how we try and do that and you know where we where our blind spots are um you know those are the stories that i feel very connected to so you know we did a story about this uh supreme court case in 1905 about the first person it was he was a swedish pastor to take his um refused to take a vaccine all the way to the Supreme Court during smallpox in Boston. And basically the Supreme Court said like, no, you have to take the vaccine. But then that case ended up paving the way for what became um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a eugenics uh, decision in the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court basically said like, you can sterilize uh, people who are deemed unfit. And like they used the vaccine case as the precedent for this. It's, it's totally nuts. So it's, it, it was, an, it became this whole argument about like bodily, the right to your body. Um, and it was like, I mean, which is not a controversial topic that people talk about at all ever. Right. 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 Yeah. right. But it's like, when we think about a vaccine, like in 1905, right, I was like, right, Oh yeah, right. of course the Supreme court should say like, take the vaccine, you know, in this massive smallpox outbreak. But then that became just complicated 20 years later when the Supreme court used that case to decide if we can tell people to take the vaccine, we can also tell people that they need to be forcibly sterilized um, if they are deemed unfit, which is, yeah, insane. So that was a situation which like, oh, I don't know how to feel about this. In the same way that it's like with spam and, and the strike and the, in the third episode with immigration, it's like it doesn't feel so clean mm-hmm. as to how to feel about this. You know, it's not so like clear cut. Um, well, it's and, like you come in with an angle or a thesis and then I think your work the research, the the journalism of it just takes you in a completely different direction. You kind of have to just be like, I got to I got to go wherever this leads. Yeah. 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 And, and being willing to like test your theories and have them 
fail and have that be part of the story, you know, like have your, our own like assumptions and, and the ways in which our blind spots are revealed, be part of the, be something that you're like true to in the story, like not claiming to know what the hypothesis is going in or what the answer is. And, you know, very much an experiment in that way. Like we have a hypothesis and we test it and sometimes it doesn't hold up. And then it challenges us more to keep asking questions. And I think that's like, those are the stories where I learned the most, like they feel like they transcend me as a journalist. And, you know, like, I feel like I learn more about life and (laughs) I feel like I approach the world differently as myself, as me, not as a journalist. And those are the ones that feel like the most rewarding for me as a person. Yeah. You, You know what it's like? It's kind of like if someone approaches you about a podcast guest that did a podcast about spam, and you think you're going to talk about <laughs> Filipino heritage and spam, and that's not what you talk about. <laughs> and, and I have to do this too, and I feel like it's so hard all the time. Like you, right now, the United States is just like a pressure cooker of just oh ideas, and yeah. and just like the humility, and also just how difficult it is to be like, you know what? I will listen to this person and really yeah. try and understand like where they're coming from because I really just. I feel like the more I know and the more I do that, the more I feel like I just don't know in the in a way that is humbling for me and that I, I find it really hard to make like really strong convictions now because talking to people, things are complicated. And right. I mean, obviously there are things that I make very strong convictions about. Well, but, but, but part of that pressure cooker, it's interesting you mentioned that because that is part of the pressure cooker. And a, a good pressure cooker, just to be like a total agent about it, has a release <laughs> valve. And there was some VC when I was in the startup world I read this somewhere. They said, strong beliefs weakly held. And the problem is Mm -hmm. strong beliefs strongly held because that's the pressure cooker without the relief valve. So it's okay to have conviction or belief as long as you're willing to have a conversation and and learn and evolve it. Yeah. And I feel like going in and and trying to like release judge. I mean, obviously there are some interviews that are accountability interviews. Someone did a bad thing (laughs) and you need to like hound them. (laughs) But especially like this story. Okay, we're talking to to people who fall on different sides, the strike fall on different sides of like how immigration and meatpacking is a good thing or a bad mm-hmm. thing. Like mm-hmm. really listening and not being like, and not trying to impose judgment on why they think that, you know, being like, oh, they just don't know. You know, it's like, no, that's actually, that's just not a way to do an interview. It's, that would be bad. And it's not a way to do good journalism. And I feel like that has been the most rewarding lesson of all of this is just like really listening and mm-hmm. trying to force myself not to like have these red flags go up when someone yeah. says something that maybe feels like a red flag to me of like, oh, but like, cause it's part of this larger cultural discourse that's super hot right now and feels mm-hmm. like, oh God, they're just saying this thing. But yeah, I don't know. I, f- I really do feel like I'm like, oh my God, so many people are just like trying to do their best. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that looks so different and everyone has blind spots and I don't know, maybe that's really naive, but I feel like for me, that's where the stories unfold in ways that just are the most compelling for me. And and again, take me out of it as a journalist. And just like, I then think about it in my life as how I relate to other people in, mm-hmm. in my life and, and yeah. how I want to be. And that is like what makes all of this worth it. I love that. There's, um, what I hear in that is there's, there's such a great uh, level of curiosity that you bring as you're doing this. And, and it requires that it requires that commitment to stay curious, right? Because there could be, as you're unraveling a story and pulling at threads, you just kind of don't really know what you're going to see next. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think also this, I mean, to tie it back to the beginning, I think this also goes back to being part of two 
different cultures. You know, it's like it's like always kind of like a way to bring it back. Always yeah, kind you're of good at this. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, and that's <laughs> and that's the break. And that's um, the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I but I really do feel like towing this line where things are not so clear cut, and they, you know, I also will say I come from like a very conservative Latino and Filipino family. And that in itself feels like a contradiction. And -hmm. just living in a world of contradiction can be really lonely. You know, Laura Bazelon is a journalist and she said that like she reports on stories that feel clear cut and then end up not being clear cut. And she's just like being in contradiction and living in contradiction is a really lonely place to be. But it's also a really important place to be. And like that really resonates with not only just like what I try to do in like journalism, but just like how to like living my life and it feels like it's like my upbringing like primed me <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to feel okay in that space even though it's really hard or or push myself to, to be in that space just because I do come from a lot of contradiction in my yeah. family as well two different two different backgrounds two yeah different two different backgrounds different like yeah. political opinions like does not fit a clean cut narrative of like this is an immigrant family you know right. like we have an Italian restaurant like that doesn't feel <laughs> <laughs> that's part I find the most hilarious <laughs> But, yeah. but it is that it is that point about you don't there's no conforming or stereotype that exists in your upbringing because it just couldn't from the like just the logistics of it. So as a result, I hate doesn't use the word normal, but there is no normal. There is so no as normal. a result, yeah, you're yeah. open to everything not being normal, right? Which yeah. I, I hate to say, I'm not saying everyone or some people are more normal than others, but there were traditions, but it wasn't the kind of mainstream quote unquote tradition, right? There wasn't meatloaf on the table. Yeah. Or meatloaf and casseroles. It was spam and eggs. It was spam and yeah. eggs. Yeah. Yeah. And then like platanos. <laughs> but, like, but then also like Italian food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we were to go back to your childhood, spam and eggs and all sorts of things that Lola would make for you, what's what's some advice you'd give to your younger self? Oh, is everyone just like... <laughs> cower at this question. Yeah, this um, is like the SAT portion yeah. of our discussion. <laughs> um yeah, be a vampire. Perfect. <laughs> no, I think and I'm working on this still is really like trusting my curiosity. I don't know. I think like I said that kind of growing up in these liminal spaces is a is a lonely place to be and I think for a really long time it was lonely and it was confusing and I didn't know where I fit in. And just even just being like, even just on a really like basic level, like, am I Filipino or am I Latina? Like, which one am I? And like, I just be like, it's like, you can feel settled in like not knowing, not feeling like you're fitting one or the other, which is like so cliche to tell like a mixed race kid, but it's Mm -hmm. so true. I mean, really it's like cliche for a reason. And that like all of these experiences like are making you this person with your own view of the world and like that is something to be embraced and you can actually like use it in a really cool way you know it it can like make you more empathetic it can and and don't like resist it or or feel animosity or try and like force yourself into one box or the other like feeling settled in this like place where yeah you only know your own experience and you don't know other people's experience and being settled in your experience of like "Hmm, you know I'm kind of like in between here, like feeling like an outsider looking in. But so I think I would just be like feeling settled and growing curiosity from that space rather than like trying to 
fit myself in one place or the other, which I'm still working on today. Like I'm always like, am I this? I have to be like this. And it's like, yeah. no, it's just like, <laughs> it's so cliche. It's so, so, so cliche. But it really is just like trusting, trusting yourself. And, and yeah, you kind of have to turn off the noise and to your point, just trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're all still trying to figure ourselves out, you know, seven yeah. years old, 17, 27, 47. <laughs> Yeah. Start a podcast. It's free therapy, man. <laughs> I know, really. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I just remember it being like a really confusing and lonely place as like yeah. someone who didn't know where. And and I'm, you know, you you're both raising kids that are also of like mixed race. And I don't know if that's something that you guys find as well. But I know for me it felt like really it was like genuinely really hard and confusing and like but then, but then it's like it all connects, right? Because then it also just like makes you I definitely contribute like attribute my willingness to like want or my, the way I, I actually gravitate towards stories that I don't know how to feel about it coming from that little place of the vulnerability and a fear in like a seven-year-old like it all feels connected to me in a way yeah you know using it as a superpower rather than a something to to try and and push down yeah Gabby we we thought we were gonna talk to you for 45 minutes about spam <laughs> And you've given us so much more. Okay, I'm good. Well, you guys are asking really great questions. This has been like a really fun one for me. I will say oh, a lot of you. Oh, we're not. We're not yeah, you're not off the hook. Oh, yet. okay, okay. So, just kidding. <laughs> so the, the the regular portion of our of our conversation has kind of come to an end, but now it's time for speed round. Are you oh, ready for speed oh round, God. Gabby? Okay. I should have read your email about about this more clearly. <laughs> like, what is going This is fun because I literally didn't prepare a thing. So That's sure. Perfect. No <laughs> one's ever ready for speed round. Yeah. Gabby. And even, even when they do read our emails, they're still not ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's hear it. Let's, yeah. Hit me. What is one thing about you that no one expects? Okay. I go through, I go through two jars of peanut butter a week. What? Yeah. <laughs> what do you put it on? Everything. Like everything. like like everything. literally everything. Like, so I'll have like oatmeal and peanut butter in the morning, and then I'll have peanut butter in my yogurt, and then peanut butter toast. And um, yeah, I hope like my kid doesn't end up having a peanut allergy. Peanut allergy. My daughter has a nut allergy. <laughs> no way! Oh my god! See that? Yeah. Like I'm just I don't know. It would be like I don't know what I would do. <laughs> my world would turn turn upside down. <laughs> what is a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Hmm. Book or maybe the best characters that I really do. Okay, so so going back to this, um, what, what I was just saying about like being a kid and like what I would tell myself, um, Pen Fifteen. Just do you guys know the Hulu show Pen Fifteen? No. Oh my god. Okay, well, it's like not for children, but um, it's for adults. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, it's two um, adults. It's about like the middle school experience. And it's like an eight, okay. it, it's this uh, Asian kid and a white kid who are like two girls, best friends, and like just navigating middle school. But the two actors, Maya, and I forgot the other name, the other woman's name, um, they're adults playing their middle school selves. So they're like, I've read about this. I've okay. About so this. they're like dressed up as middle schoolers and everyone else in the cast is a middle schooler is like an appropriate age, except for them. It's it's just like brilliant, and it just kind of speaks to like everything I was just talking about of just being a kid is hard and confusing, and like seeing it to adults playing kids yeah. playing themselves as kids is just this brain melding experience of just like this whole other seeing yourself in this whole other way, and well, it's um, kind of like looking at the past through adult eyes because there are two adults experimenting and or uh, experiencing and narrating it. Right? Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. and it's just like genius. I just, I highly recommend it. It's just as a genius, like 
premise and this writing is amazing and it's like beautiful even though it's so weird. I just realized what you're talking about. I saw huge billboards around my neighborhood for this and it's pen and then the number 15. Yeah. So it looks like penis. Yes, yes. And Ruman, <laughs> you can imagine my two little boys were like, mom, can we watch that show? I'm like, what the hell show is that? Oh yeah. Why are no, they- that's what I said. Like, not <laughs> like you're like, oh, middle school. And it's like, no, it's like not for kids. When you said um, that, I was like, wait, why does that sound familiar? And then I saw it in my head. I'm like, oh no, that's the penis show. Okay. That's I get the pe- it. It's the penis show. <laughs> yeah. The penis show <laughs> probably like recently was the thing that changed my life. <laughs> I'm totally going to watch it. It sounds great. What is your favorite mom dish? And you cannot use something with spam in it. Mm, um, <laughs> sinigang. Do you guys know sinigang? No. What is it's, that? It's, uh, it's like this broth with tamarind and pork. It's like kind of sour and it has eggplant um, and pork. Um, and it's just like so good. You co- It takes a long time to cook. So it's kind of like slow cooked and all of the meat and vegetables are slow cooked in this like more sour kind of broth and you have it with rice. Nice. And I just like, I don't know how to make it because I'm lazy, um, but <laughs> it's really good when my mom makes it. <laughs> That's why it's a mom dish, right? Yeah, it's a mom dish. <laughs> what is your least favorite food, Gabrielle? Least favorite food. Oh my God. I tried this tempeh. Tempeh is terrible. I hate it. I Every time I try, every time I like go to a fancy vegan place and they're like, well, we don't have meat, but we have tempeh. I'm like, okay, look, I'll give it another chance. And then every time I do, I'm like, nope, tastes like rubber feet. Did, like, <laughs> like if a foot was rubber, it would taste like this because it has a little bit of taste of feet, but also rubber. Which I don't know what feet or rubber tastes like, but it's how I imagine. <laughs> if it did. Love that you're taking a stand for this one for the rest exactly. of us. I agree. I'm with you yeah. on this one. It's, I hate it. <laughs> I take seitan and tofu all day long, but tempeh, no thank you. Yeah, it's very confused by tempeh and why it's so, is so popular. I have to say, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I I can't imagine the difference like on my tongue right now. I'm like, what is it? I can't tell. I I don't know. Like I can't differentiate those two things in my head. What Satan and and, and, and oh. tempeh to me are like very similar, but I'm sure it's not because you guys don't like one and you like the other. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a yeah. I don't know. It feels like a world of difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think I just eat too much meat based products to like even know. Like I'm not around those things enough. Yeah, I know. It's like clearly I'm not a vegetarian. Yeah. I remember yeah, trying I'm to be a vegetarian, vegetarian for like one week, and my parents were like. I'm sorry. What are you going to eat? Um, <laughs> you eat a lot of Indian food. It's great. That, that's, that's true. true. <laughs> Filipino that's food true. is Filipino food is yeah. not not this. No, this is certain. a tension in my in my uh, Chinese wife relationship. <laughs> yeah, Filipino food like certain cuisines just don't lend themselves to and and, and tempeh like adobo sounds bad. Ugh. Yeah, I think we can all agree <laughs> that yes, tempeh yeah. is, is garbage. <laughs> we will accept that answer. <laughs> You probably have a very long list for this next one. Who's someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast? Oh, I hate this question. Dead or alive? <laughs> Either one. Yes. 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 Yes to both. Either one. Oh, okay. So this is, I feel like this is so situational. It depends on just like what I'm going through in life and kind of like what I have questions about. So it's like right now, I would really like to talk, this is so like nerdy and annoying, but like Hannah Arendt, who <laughs> wrote The Origins of Totalitarianism, <laughs> and would just like like to talk to her about she wrote about like um, the Eichmann trials during World War II. She's survived the Holocaust and just has all of these like really amazing 
uh, books just about understanding like power. And I feel like right now with everything going on in Ukraine, I just want to be like, hi, Hannah Arendt, like would like to talk to you right now. Feel very scared and confused. So right now, that's who I would like to have a conversation with. Yeah. It, it, you want perspective on the moment, right? Because Yeah, like right um, now, that's what I would mm-hmm, would like, which mm-hmm. is like, yeah. Because we're, we're so in it and we have to be. But I think every generation feels like whatever the thing is happening is the worst. My, my wife and I were literally talking, like we feel like we're entering very dark times. And it's, I hate to say this has happened before, right? But it yeah. has. And yeah. the problem is we don't talk to people about what has happened before. And we think we're all, you know, we're special in our moment. Yeah. And we are, but at the same time, it's like perspective is always helpful. Yeah, yeah. So, Gabrielle, last question. What does being a modern minority mean for you? I think it's, I think it's exactly kind of what we, we've been talking about. You know, like we're talking about how increasingly like people are finding themselves, you know, especially like as, you know, the country becomes more and more diverse, like people are having to find ways to like be okay with not with with like challenging stereotypes and not fitting into them and not trying to force yourself into them and you know approaching the world with like openness and empathy and that kind of was what being a modern minority that's how I see it that's great that's a great answer well Gabrielle thanks for making the time to kind of talk about not just your journey but the kind of work that that you're drawn to and honestly just doing the work the body of work the things that you're associated with and working on are I'm very envious. I think you have a very cool job. <laughs> and I can't wait to see the next few things that, that you put out there. Thank you for listening. This was one of my, like, this has been a really fun conversation. Absolutely. We hope we can stay in touch. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.